Peer Review is a series of podcasts designed to shed light on the extraordinary breadth and diversity of talent that sit in the House of Lords. The House of Lords often gets a bad rap because it is thought to be a house of cronies and it is an unelected house. But I hope through these interviews you will see that there is this extraordinary talent, there is a great knowledge and experience, and with that I leave you to draw your own conclusions. Well, my guest today is Baroness Prasha of Runnymede which is an interesting combination because obviously Prussia, Indian origin, and Runnymede being the place of uh, great historic interest in, in the United Kingdom. Usha, you, you've been in the House of Lords for 24 years now, which is uh, a long time. But I want to go back to where it all started for you because you were born in Kenya and then moved to Yorkshire. A slight weather difference, I think. But um, to, to talk me through what happened, what were the events that stimulated that? Well, my departure from Kenya was after I finished what in those days were called O-levels. And I wanted to do my A-levels in Kenya, but it was just before independence. And in those days, there was segregation, not like South Africa, but there was kind of segregation. There was Asian schools, European schools, and the Asian schools did not have facility for A-level. Um, and of course, I could, wouldn't be accepted in a, in a European school. So I came to Wakefield, Yorkshire, to a direct grant school, the Wakefield Girls High Did School. Did your parents come with you? No, I came by myself. My goodness. Because my And you were what, 16 or something? 16. And my brother was a doctor. He qualified at Leeds. And there's a difference between him and I of about 12, 13 years. Right. And so he was practicing in Yorkshire. So he said, fine. I was always a kind of a, a favorite kid sister. So I came and went to school and stayed with him and his wife, Brenda. And so I went to school uh, in, in, in Wakefield. It was a very interesting experience, John. And it was a grammar school, wasn't it? It was a direct grant school. And were and there a lot of I Indians or people from the African continent? No, I continent? was about to tell you. It was a very interesting experience because I was the first ever uh, overseas student that had. Incredible. You were, you were head girl, amazingly. I was. And, and, and did, I mean, on that sort of topical subject at the moment. Did you experience racism? It sounds as if you didn't in the slightest. I didn't. In the, as I said, I was a novelty. And in what was very interesting, that I was just appointed. I mean, the head girls were elected. So Amazing. I was elected by my peers to become oh, a head girl for third year. So that was fantastic. <laughs> and uh, funny enough, I came here with the, with the interest to do something like domestic science. I was very keen on interior decoration and all of that. And both my my brother and the headmistress said to me, with O-levels like this, Osha, you can pursue that as a hobby, do something different. So I went to Leeds University yeah. from there. And did politics. And did politics and sociology, yes, indeed. Amazing. And you alluded a moment ago to India. I always find it interesting, and particularly with you, is that you're from Kenya, but obviously from Indian parents, but very much in your DNA, despite having spent virtually all your life in the UK, is India. Well, again, as I said, in, I mean, in, in, in East Africa, your upbringing was very Indian. You spoke your own mother tongue in, in, in the home. And I alluded to segregation. The segregation was there. You know, there was Europeans, Asians, and Africans. 
And the only interaction you probably had with the Africans, you know, where they were there to help in, in, in the home. But one thing I do remember that my father and my brother, who invited me to come here, were the only people who actually had Africans coming home and sitting at the same dining table eating with us. Uh, so for me, the whole issue of equality was very much part of that. But your upbringing is very Indian. So my culturally, you could say I'm Indian, but I mean, I loved Africa. And you're married to an Indian. I'm married to an Indian. And, uh, and did, also, you, did you meet Bishay here or did you meet him? I met him here in London because he came to UK two years before me, 62, I came in 64. Our families knew each other, but we didn't know each other because there's a five-year difference. So he came after having done his... A-levels to study law here. He studied in London. I was in Leeds, but we met in London. Mm. Looking at your amazing CV, there's one thing that stands out, which is um, you were chairman of the parole board, pretty young age of 49. Since 99, when you reached the Lords, there's been this sort of incredible explosion of your CV in theory. But I'd like to just find out a bit more about what happened up to 97 and 99, for that matter, when you became yeah, chairman of the yeah. Pro Bowl, and what was the background to it? I think my early years are very formative here. When I said I was in Wakefield and in Leeds, if I may just give you a little bit of an insight into that, my sister-in-law, Brenda, uh, was a health visitor. And at that time, a lot of the migrants were coming from Mirpur. And she, of course, didn't speak the language, and I did. So I went around with her interpreting because I could speak... Brenda was British. Was she? Brenda was English, right. yeah. So I got an insight into the issues facing early migrants and became very interested in that area. So when I went to the university, I became involved, again, in the campaign against racial discrimination and taught English to Indian women you know, who had come there. So that was part of my extracurricular activity. But I was very active at Leeds, was a you know, pretty swinging university in the 60s. And But while I was there situation in East Africa changed because there was a 1968, mm. there was Africanization and then there was the uh, Immigration Act here. So, of course, I couldn't go back because my mother and father retired and went back to India. So I stayed on. I did international relations and politics with view to going back. So I changed course and then decided to go to Glasgow University and I did social administration. And that was interesting because... I had a wonderful tutor, Keka Michael, uh, who uh, was someone who actually lived in the Gorbals on Social Security to see what it was like to live on Social Security. And she did a lot of work with women in prisons and so on. So those are the kind of early influences. And that got me interested that I wanted to work in race relations. So my very first job was as a conciliation officer with the then Race Relations Board. And the two significant things I really want to point out, which I'm very proud of, I led the investigation into dispersal in education. Now, very few people know that busing happened in the UK because in 1965, Edward Boyle, when he went to Southall, parents complained, you know, that a lot of Asians are coming in, our schools are getting saturated, the standards are low. So he decided children should be dispersed. And there was, so I led that investigation because nobody would complain, but there was a single provision in the Race Relations Act that you could initiate a, an investigation. So what I did, I, you wouldn't believe, I walked the streets of Southall, 
taking evidence from parents about five years old being bussed, having to leave home at seven and coming back at five, six o'clock because they bussed out. So that was... This is bus to school. Yeah. Bus to school. So busing was dismantled as a result of that investigation. And while I was there, I was... But on, head- on that subject, how else would they have got to school? Well, the point is, they they were bussed into outside the area. Right, so they bust out of the area yeah, rather than, like, yeah, so, so they were the yeah, places were found. The within, busing was dispersed, yeah, which was away from their sort of area in Southall, going into outer areas. You see, and then at the age of twenty eight, I was headhunted to become the director of the Runnymede Trust. Yeah, and I of course led Runnymede Trust for seven years, and during that time. As you know, a lot of the... I and just wait. explain what the Runnymede Trust Runny was. Trust was set up in 1968 following the Enoch Powell's Rivers of Blood speech. Some very key people, um, uh, Lord Campbell of Eskin, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Richard Rampton, Jim Rose, mm-hmm. uh, Lord Lester, they actually got together. And Sir Peter Medeville, who was a Nobel Prize winner, decided there was a need for an educational body because in those days... Promoting race relations was not a charitable object. <laughs> so it was d- established as an educational charity. And I was its fourth director because Deepak Nandi was once Dave Stevens mm-hmm. and Tom mm-hmm. Reese. And my period there coincided. I worked very closely with Anthony Lester on the 1976 uh, anti-discrimination legislation. I was there when the Scarman report, you know, when, when the uprisings happened in 1982. But that was, in a way, a good insight into the broader public policy because it wasn't an area that didn't touch, you know, whether it was education or whatever. So when I was there, I recognized that I didn't want, if I wanted to mainstream the issues of discrimination inclusion into the, into the policy structure, I needed to mainstream myself. So I couldn't continue to work in very specific bodies. So I took two years out and went to be a senior fellow at the Policy Studies Institute. And I did a piece of research uh, on primary health care because I wanted to see how you bring about organization change and implementation of policy and compare that to Scarman. And I wrote a book with uh, Professor Ken Young uh, on primary health care in London. And from then, of course, I applied to be the director of the National Council for Voluntary Organizations. And that, to me, was my first step mm-hmm. into what I call mainstreaming myself. Yeah, and mainstream public service. Precisely. And uh, NCVO, as you know, is a umbrella body for all the non-for-profit organizations. Yeah. The comparable, you could say, is the CBI for the voluntary sector. It was a breakthrough number way. They've never had a woman director. They've never had somebody of my kind of you know, heritage. And so I ran the NCVO for five years, from 1986 to 91. And again, that coincided with the very interesting uh, developments uh, because there was a view by the then government, Mrs. Thatcher, that not-for-profit organizations should only be service delivery. They shouldn't campaign. They wanted to change the charity law, community care, they wanted to improve the efficiency, effectiveness, you know. So I kind of was right in the center of some of the policy changes. Um, and I also take the view that 
voluntary sector isn't a career as such. You come in, you do your bit, and then you move away. So after five years, I then had a very interesting portfolio of things to do. I was appointed to be on the Runciman Commission, mm -hmm. which was the Royal Commission on Criminal Justice, which was chaired by Lord Runciman. I was appointed on the Lord Chancellor's Advisory Committee on Legal Education and Conduct. And Kenneth Baker asked me to be a non-exec of Channel 4. And I also... A man of great vision, Ken. Absolutely. And I actually uh, also was asked, this is an interesting thing, if I would chair United Kingdom Immigrants Advisory Service. And I said to the Home Office, no, I don't want to chair it. What I will do is do an analysis for you, because when that organization was set up, immigration was a big issue. That has changed. It's now mainly refugees. So I actually chaired a panel, um, which, and I said I will do it if I can choose the people who can be on my panel. So I did a piece of work for the Home Office, uh, which led to dismantling of United Kingdom Immigrants Advisory Service and formed two organizations, Refugee Legal Center, and the Immigrant Advisory Service. Mm. So that was kind of the pieces of work that I... I and then the, the then the parole board well, as uh, as said, job became available. And you, clearly all this was incredible training. So th this was... And I also became involved in Salzburg Seminars, you know, which is now another international body yeah, where yeah. I did a lot of work on non-governmental organizations and democracy because the change was taking place in Europe and South Africa. Then I was ready to do another big challenge. So I applied... To be the pro I mean, I think what is significant is that by this time the Nolan principles had kicked in. Yeah. And prior to me being, you just need to say what the Nolan principles were. But as you know, this was about you know uh, uh, integrity in public uh, public life. Yeah. And they had said that all the public uh, bodies should now be appointing people through open competition. So when the pro bono job came, I applied because prior to that. It had only been a kind of a sinecure for junior Home Office ministers. Lord Belstead was my predecessor. I applied, and lo and behold, I won the competition and became the first appointed chairman of the parole board. And again, that was, as you can imagine, it's a very tough job. Uh, but I... What were the main issues that... Well, one of the two, two things which I feel I, I, I should point out to you that I did. One was that there was a backlog of cases. Only 25% of people were getting their you know, cases heard in time. Otherwise, they were languishing in, in prison. And secondly, there was a push to make the parole board very adverse, adversarial. They wanted to bring up lawyers in, so you actually... So I said... Fine. I mean, to cut a very long story short, I changed the whole thing. And by the time I left, 98% of the people heard their decisions on time. So you, you'd become a peer in 99, as I'd referenced earlier. And from then on, in some ways, it all kicked off because you've, you ended up with a multitude of, of uh, involvements in the public sector. And in many ways, I think a peerage must have helped all this. Just to knock off a few before we get into the detail of them, you became, as you say, the first civil service commissioner, first chair of the Judicial Appointments Commission. You were involved in the Iraq inquiry, which we're going to come to in a minute. You deputy chairman of the British Council, 
you were president of the Royal Commonwealth Society, where you and I have have, mm. have uh, enjoyed conversation. You were chair of the Natural Literacy Trust. And I set it up. You, and Every Child Matters. There's a sort of whole range of things. But let's just explain what the first Civil Service Commission, yeah. uh, the, the, sorry, the Civil Service Commission does, and you were the first. Yeah. Now, before I go to that, I think I should point out to you that I was, I had actually started doing public service well before I became uh, a peer. Because... Yes, as I did. I, no, yeah. I was appointed, in fact... Uh, on the Social Security Advisory Committee and I served on the Arts Council. I was the youngest member of the Arts, Arts Council from 1979 to 82. So I'd already started doing all of that. And the National Literacy Trust, I should say, again, I'm very proud of it. When I left the NCVO, Sir Simon Hornby, who was then the chairman of WH Smith, yeah. was leaving and he wanted to kind of leave, leave a legacy. He got hold of me through Headhunters and said, would you help me set up the National Literacy Trust? For me, it was a dream come true. I love reading. I just finished the NCVO and I thought, right, this is the way to do it. So we established the National Literacy Trust, which today, if I may say so, starting with three people, is now a 10 million turnover, a Amazing. very effective body. Uh, and you so were chair I, from 2009? Wasn't yeah, it? I was yeah. deputy with Simon, then I yeah. became chair. I'm now the uh, the president. president yeah. yeah. So, so, sorry about that. But no, no, but go back to the, uh, the Civil first, Service Commission. Civil, what, what, what does that do? The, the role of the Civil Service Commissioner is to help maintain the impartiality of the Civil Service by ensuring that appointments to the Civil Service are made through fair and open competition and on merit. And this, as you know, was something which was set up by Northcote Trevelyan uh, to do away with patronage and increase the effectiveness of 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 the uh, civil service well effective providing you got the choice right <laughs> well absolutely absolutely and i'm very proud of it because again i think from the time i was there from 2000 2005 it was the blair government uh, there was an explosion of uh, special advisors uh, there was a kind of a push to you know, change the whole thing so again i had to position it to say look maintaining the impartiality is not incompatible with increasing the effectiveness of the civil service. So I worked with one, two, three, three cabinet secretaries, Richard Wilson, Andrew Turnbull, mm -hmm. and Russell Donald. Uh, and I think uh, we managed to maintain the boundaries. Because if I look at my career, I think my job has been policing the boundaries uh, in, 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 the, in the broader constitutional sense. And then you became chairman of the Judicial Appointments Commission, which kind of speaks for itself. So you were responsible for yeah. appointing the judges. Well, that was it. Again, I was the inaugural chair of the Judicial Appointments Commission. Yes. It was set up following the 2005 Constitutional Reform Act. And again, that was not only setting it up, but changing the culture, because intellectually, both the Lord Chancellor and the judges knew why there was a need, but emotionally they couldn't let go of the patronage. And they'd also made the change that it needed to increase the, increase the pool from where judges were drawn, both in terms of solicitors and not Oxbridge and minorities. So I always used to say it was like, you know, um, building, living in a house while you're building it. So basically setting it all up and actually changing and implementing uh, the, 
the the aspirations of the yeah as you alluded the, these are all changes in the way of government that uh, it no longer became patronage it became application I think part of the problem we have now is that a lot of people in their right minds wouldn't apply for these jobs because the scrutiny is just unbelievable. Well, I suppose in both, I mean, uh, yes, you're right, but that's about public appointments. Uh, but I think for judges and civil servants, I think with judges, the issue really is that if you are a young commercial barrister at the bar, you have to toy with the idea of whether you actually give up a lucrative practice to become a judge. Yeah. And with women, the issue is different because you see a lot of women entering the legal profession, both as solicitors and at the bar. But attrition happens when they go and have children and come back. Integration is different. I mean, that's an ongoing issue. But but I think, on the whole, this has been a good change. Um, but I think the only reservation I have, I tried very hard to position the Judicial Appointments Commission as a constitutional body and not just a recruitment body. Mm. Because how judges are selected is very important. Yeah. Because if you want independent judiciary, the selection has to be seen to be independent. In 2009, you joined the Iraq inquiry, which is probably uh, similar to the COVID inquiry. You know, it took years. It was a huge amount of work and paper and research, etc. Just talk, talk us through that inquiry and, and what effect it had on you. But unlike the COVID inquiry... Um, the Iraq inquiry was an inquiry by a kind of privy council inquiry. So we were all made privy councillors. And the objective was to basically uh, describe what happened and what lessons could be learned. And there were five of us on that inquiry. And learning... Uh, about the sort of, in terms of what lessons could be learned, it was very important to establish what actually happened. And we were quite determined that we did not want lawyers involved because the minute you get lawyers involved, you become adversarial. People think it's kind of a blame culture. That wasn't the objective. I actually, it was tough, but I really enjoyed it. It was very time consuming. There was a lot of media scrutiny. We took a lot of flack. But what I enjoyed about it were two things. One were the colleagues were fantastic. And I think we all of us got on really well, which was a good thing. Um, but um, the actual insight into what happened was good. And it played some of the in interest I had, which was machinery of government was my main interest. Having been a civil service commissioner, I had a very good ringside view of how things op operate. And some of the mistakes which happened over the Iraq inquiry were to do with machinery of government. In a way, if you compare to covid is a relationship between the scientific advisors and ministers, and here was the intelligence services and ministers. So why it took so long? Uh, well, in a way, if you do a PhD and you're covering you know, almost about seven, eight years, it takes a long time. But ours took longer for two reasons. One was we had quite a discussion with the government, the then government, on wanting to declassify uh, cabinet, uh, cabinet minutes, because we thought we couldn't tell the full story under all the cabinet minutes that we thought were relevant, properly redacted, could be made public. Secondly, we also wanted to reveal the telephone conversations that took place between Bush and Blair. 
Now, that took almost two years of negotiation. Mm. But we, we were not willing to do that because we could not tell the full story. The second issue, which wasn't so much of the time, is what is called the maximization process, which is that if you are going to say something, anything about anybody in the report, you've got to give them the opportunity to see what we've said. Not so much in terms of what our comments were, whether the, the story was accurate. And I think, retrospectively, there's a good thing to have done, because if you didn't do maximization, you could have had judicial views afterwards. People have said, you know, you've, been, you've actually said un, un, uh, not accurate things about us. So I think it was, on the whole, a good exercise. And I think people forget that it's a sign of a very robust democracy that we can lay ourselves open to that kind of scrutiny. Mm. Same applies to COVID. And the number of Americans who said to us, As we wish we could have an inquiry like that. So I think we're very good at beating ourselves here, but I think it's a sign of a pretty robust democracy, which says, yes, we're going to have an ex examination. The only sad thing was that we slightly got overshadowed because of Brexit, because, you know, it happened about the same time. <laughs> Depending on which, what, what which I meant side is, of the fence you're on, I no, guess. No, no, it's, it's uh, not whether you're pro or anti-Brexit. No, no, it's not about that. It's but, whether you, you were involved in the Iraq war or Yeah, but, but <laughs> or for not. my point, yes, exactly. <laughs> but the point was, lessons learned for government departments yeah. were substantial. I think some lessons have been learned. But I, I'm not sure they are, because I do get sometimes very frustrated. Oh, it took so long. And I always used to say to them, look, we will do a good job, but tell me, are you actually strong enough to implement the changes? And it was very sad that even the Public Administration Select Committee in the House of Commons, you know, had Chilcott before them after it was published. All they questioned him was why there was a delay. Mm. They did not concentrate on what lessons could be learned. Here's a public administration, public administration select committee. They should have looked at that. So I'm just hoping that we, they will also pay heed to the COVID inquiry lessons. And you must have formed your own personal uh, views on the Iraq situation. When you say personal, I mean, they were very much informed on evidence. Ours was a very evidence-based mm -hmm. uh, inquiry. And I think we took, we all decided that we were not going to talk about it after it's been published because what is said, it's there. We signed up to it. And, and I think it's a pretty, I mean, it's, it's a very accurate picture of, of, of what, what happened. And I think from my point of view, um, it's a question of uh, learning about machinery of government, uh, interventions, I mean, they're big, big issues, you know, which we haven't got time to go through. Uh, you and I have, have spent a lot of time working on Commonwealth things. You were president of the Royal Commonwealth Society. W where do you see the Commonwealth going in, 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 in short? Does it have a future? I think it has a future. Uh, its future depends on two things. How far we build the infrastructure of the non-governmental Commonwealth. As you know, I feel passionately about that. Mm -hmm. Because I think Commonwealth was set up as a people's Commonwealth, and we sometimes forget that. As far as the heads of government and the Commonwealth Secretariat is concerned, as you well know my views, I think it needs a massive reform if it's got to remain relevant. Mm. Um, so I think it's an organization which has an enormous potential which hasn't always been re realized. 
Um, but I think it'd be a pity if we didn't work hard yeah. to maintain it, to increase its effectiveness. But I find it very frustrating that, to me, it's blindingly obvious what needs to happen. Yeah. But nobody's kind of gripping it. But I That's have a to third say, of the world's population. I, I, Huge I, I, youth. Absolutely. I'm not saying it to you, but youth. I think what you've done through on, on, on business and investment, I think, is, is an example of what can be done. Yeah. Well, thank you for saying that. Just um, as we conclude, Uja, you're a crossbencher. You're probably not a huge fan of this government, but you 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 you, you enjoy the impartiality of crossbencher, and you're still very active in the Lords. Yes. And why? I think it's a privilege to be there, and if you have a position where you feel you can actually influence. Two things I enjoy the most. One is select committees. Ever since I've been in the House of Lords, I've always done a select committee. And the select committees are, are ones that review legislation, that uh, come out with reports on on future of yeah. whatever select committee you're we, on. We basically do inquiries. I mean, yeah. currently I sit on the Justice and Home Affairs, and we are doing an inquiry into community sentencing, but we keep an eye on what's happening. I chaired the subcommittee of the European Union Home Affairs Committee, and there the role was to actually uh, scrutinize uh, directives and legislation coming out of Europe, uh, but also doing our own inquiries. Uh, so I've done several of those, and I find that very interesting. Yeah. And I think it's good to be able to also influence legislation where your areas of interest are. And I think some general debates, which you and I have actually contributed to, I think is useful to raise some of these issues. So, and I think it's an essential part of our sort of constitutional arrangement. You know, if, if we're a scrutinizing house, I think we've got to take that responsibility seriously. And I'm one of these people, I do believe, if you're given a responsibility, you've got to really do it with dedication. Well, that's eminently apparent in all your life to date. And there's still a long way to go. 